everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement, while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next-generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. To get the Crime Writers on After Show right now, go to patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is Crime Writers On, the true crime review podcast that digs into podcasts, pop culture, and this week we'll weigh in on that Game of Thrones finale you were all talking about a week ago. Sorry, that's just how our production schedule works. Then we'll review White Lies, a podcast that looks at an unsolved murder tied to the fight for civil rights in Selma, Alabama. Joining me to get that done and more is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, licensed private investigator, resident rage walker, and tropical cocktail evangelist, Lara Bricker. Hello, Lara. Hello. Yes, I have a new tropical cocktail. It's actually called the Tropical Martini. Mm. Um, my new favorite. It's quite delicious. You like it better than the painkiller? Yes or no? Um, it's a different kind of thing. I think I kind of like, you know, when you have something so much, then you're like, I don't want to have it anymore. Yes. I'm done with the painkillers for a while. Gotcha. Um, so by the end of the summer, I will probably be done with the tropical martini at the Sea Dog in Exeter. But um, until then, I'm going to ride the wave. All right. Ride it. Also yep. with us is our captain of woke cynicism, the author behind the noir novels known as the City Trilogy, and our Patreon book club host, Toby Ball. Good evening, Toby. And I'm also uh, the token male. <laughs> the token male. It's true. Uh, I was just going to like like let that slide, just not introduce Kevin and see if anyone noticed. No, I'm just kidding. Of course I wasn't going to do that. Kevin Flynn, my wonderful husband, true crime co-author, former TV journalist, and also my partner in crime here and on Patreon, is not taping with us this evening. He is recovering from his cancer surgery, which he had just a few days ago, and his uh, voice is a little bit weak. He's pretty tired. He's doing pretty well, and you can get updates about him if you follow us on social media and our Facebook group, and he's very active there. But I think he's going to be back next week at full speed, and uh, we're just going to have to soldier on without him. Toby, are you confident that we will be able to do that? Uh, in some ways, yes. In some ways, not so much. <laughs> I'm, I'm worried about the transitions, I'll be honest. Yeah, I know. Well, Our advertisers are not going to be happy this week. <laughs> I have it so funny because... Um, you know what my plan is for that? It's just to freaking wing it. I actually have no idea what's going to happen. We'll just have to find out, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> All right. On the after show on Patreon tonight, uh, for our Patreon listeners, you guys can break down how you think I did uh, without Kevin, and we can decide whether or not he should stay on this island or not. I think the answer is going to be yes. That's just a prediction. All right. So speaking of Patreon, I just want to say to everyone who has joined us there this month, thank you. Uh, if you don't know it, we make four podcasts for our Patreon listeners. Four. Other shows just make one. Some shows make none. 
Some shows make exactly the same podcast they have outside of Patreon. They just do it with a male host instead of a female host. Mm. We make four <laughs> pieces of original content behind our Patreon uh, paywall. And I just want to tell you, it hugely supports our endeavors here at Partners in Crime Media. So join now at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Check out all of our podcasts, including the Crime Writers on After Show, Toby's uh, Book Club podcast, Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker, and of course, Married with Podcast, the awesome marriage advice podcast I make with Kevin. Well, uh, moving on, I did want to issue one correction from last week. Uh, We've gotten this correction many times in the past, and I have never raised it because it's about something that Kevin does, a word he mispronounces, and I just think it's kind of dickish to tell somebody in a podcast that they mispronounce a word. But again, he's not here, so I'm just going to uh, correct the record. Uh, Go for it. The way that the kind of film that portrays somebody's biography is pronounced is not biopic, as Kevin always says. It is biopic as in a bio picture and i just want to let the many listeners who wrote in with that complaint know that i know and i guess i'll do my best to train kevin better for next time you really can't train men rebecca (laughs) let me just tell you um i have a, a quick little anecdote to tell you i went to visit some second graders last week in Exeter. They were doing all this environmental stuff and they're trying to get stores in town to get rid of plastic bags. So I was like, you know what? I'm really good about that. My husband is not. When I left, all these little kids gave me letters that were like, dear Miss Bricker, thanks for coming to our class. We hope your husband sees the light about the plastic bags. Wow. Second graders. I had three of them. Wow. So, I mean, you can't train men. That's all I'm saying. Wow. Toby, do you Toby? have a response <laughs> to this? Can men yeah, be trained? What, what happens is we're, we're like down with it and then we, we fall asleep and we wake up the next morning. It's all forgotten. Yeah. Fireman Ken's not going to forget because now he's got some bags in all his uh, his work car and his, his regular truck and they have his name on them. Nice. <laughs> like, See, I like, have the bags like a little kid. and then I just... <laughs> Forget them. Yeah. Like I just leave them in the car. Then I'm in the grocery store. and I'm like, oh, man. I just get papered these days because they they, they will still offer you that if you ask. They just want to ask. You just have to ask. And sometimes they charge you, but whatever. And Market Basket will give you boxes. Yeah, I know they will. Cats really enjoy. Yes. And Market Basket is, for the record, the greatest grocery store chain in the world. (laughs) That is not a paid endorsement. That is just the truth. It is just the truth. Despite their sometimes culturally insensitive bordering on racist signage, for instance, calling their Asian foods oriental foods, etc. Oh, <laughs> it is the greatest grocery store chain in the world. They have great labor practices. Things are in a really weird order that makes no sense. Mm-hmm. But once you know yeah. it, you just know it. Products come and go, sometimes disappear without cause, like the cookie butter. The cookie butter is gone, as well as the Brooklyn bread, flatbread pizza crusts. I'm very upset about. I need to get to the bottom of that. But Mm -hmm. when those probably went away, you probably got 10 more things that you will also become addicted to and fall in love with. Um, Yeah. So anyway. But I get the cookie butter thing is distressing to me. I don't because there's no no word about the cookie butter. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually uh, Instagrammed them about that because they had an Instagram post about the Market Basket brand almond butter and what a great value it was. Oh. And I was like, yeah, but where's the cookie butter, guys? Where'd it go? Did they respond? No, not yet. They're new on social mm. media. They just like got started a website like yeah. six months ago. They never had a website before. 
All right. This is what happens when Kevin's not around. So we talk about market basket. That's right. Cookie butter. butter. That's right. Toby, it's very important. Toby, you need to be trained. This is very important stuff. Last weekend, I made orange (laughs) juice from the concentrate because I was in the market basket and I was like, oh, shit. I was like, I better not buy that gutter water orange juice. I better get the real thing. Yes. Yeah. 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 I thought of you, Rebecca. I'm pretty sure this is what those haters were talking about when they were talking about the cackling and things that aren't funny. All right. Mm. Moving <laughs> on. <laughs> you think that's it? Uh, this weekend coming up as we tape this and this weekend behind us or that we are in the middle of in as we release this is Memorial Day weekend, the unofficial kickoff of summer. And one of the things I wanted to do on the show tonight before we get started, uh, and we're going to continue this conversation on our Patreon after show with some more recommendations, but I'm wondering if either one of you guys have read or listened to a book recently or are looking forward to reading a book so that we can help our listeners build their summer reading list. This is something we do you know, once or twice a year, usually around this time of year. And I thought this would be a, a good time to tease it. Um, Kevin doesn't read a lot, so I thought it'd be a good time to do it with just the two of you here. <laughs> so, Laura Bricker, is there something that you're reading now, have read, or are looking forward to reading this summer? It is your chance to make that recommendation. Well, I just read a book on vacation, and I know, I mean, I don't even need to recommend this book because I think so many people have heard about it, and I'm late to the party, but it was really good. Uh, Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. Really interesting scene in the marsh. This girl, Kaya, who lives in the swamps of North Carolina, there is a murder mystery in it. I was I started reading it on vacation, and then it turned out like everybody else that I met at the pool was also reading it. And there was kind of some discussion of, uh, we think this book is going to be super depressing. And But we all kept reading, and um, I'm not going to give any spoilers, but you'll be glad you read. It, it does have a satisfying conclusion. It's... Um, it's just a really interesting scene. And, you know, the reason I wanted to, you know, I, I held off. I had kind of seen people saying, oh, read this book. And then I saw a segment on like CBS Sunday morning um, a couple months ago about the woman, Delia Owens, who wrote the book. And she had such an interesting life. She used to live in Africa with her ex-husband. And they, you know, lived out, you know, studying animals and just really interesting. And that was sort of the inspiration for her coming up with this character. So... I even might be getting Fireman Ken to read it, even though he reads like one book a year and um, doesn't have much interest, but he was kind of intrigued by this. What about you, Toby? Do you have a book recommendation for summer? Are there something that you have read or something that you are looking forward to reading as the seasons change? So I just read a book called The River by Peter Heller, which was pretty good. It's about uh, a couple of college guys. I think they go to Dartmouth, actually. So there's like a New Hampshire connection, but they are going canoeing like way up in northern Canada. And it's kind of about, you know, as things do, they things kind of go wrong and it becomes sort of a, like kind of a survival story. The author has a really sort of good way about writing about nature. And if you kind of like the survival stories and, and, and you know, man away from civilization and stuff like that, I thought it was pretty good. There's like a funny, without giving away, the, the, the only flaw, he doesn't totally stick the landing. Yeah. Like I think, like I was hoping the ending would be a little bit better, but it's definitely worth reading if that's your kind of thing. Yeah. I, I thought it was re- really well written. Yeah. Well, I actually have the same criticism of the book that I'm going to recommend. And this is a book that, once again, Toby, as I was saying on the Facebook Live before this show, 
I think you and I, our tastes diverge a lot when it comes to like pop culture stuff like TV and podcasts and stuff we talk about on this show. But I actually think when it comes to novels, not like nonfiction stuff, but actual novels, I think our tastes are very closely aligned because we very often... Uh, when I recommend books to you, you like them. And when you recommend authors to me, I like them. And one of the authors you recommended to me was Jane Harper, who a couple oh, yeah. a couple years ago you suggested uh, The Dry, which I loved. She has a newer book out called The Lost Man, which, again, I don't know if it sticks the landing perfectly because I kind of saw it coming, but it's such a beautifully written and uh, fun you know, kind of suspense, uh, family drama sort of novel. But what's really incredible about it is the setting. It takes place in this like farmland in the Australian outback. And it's fucking bananas where these people live in the book and where I've come to realize because I went into a little rabbit hole as I was reading it about what it's really like to live there on these sprawling ranches that are miles and miles and miles and miles and miles long. Uh, So, for instance, if you go out for a walk, even if you're just going out to like do a chore, you have to like sign out in a book in your house because... If it turns out if people don't know where you are for more than a few hours, like you're probably dead. Um, it's like it's crazy. Oh. The environment there is bananas and the setting is so great. And this is basically about a family with a lot of dysfunction. And the, the book opens with uh, one of the brothers in the family being murdered. They're all adults. And it sort of is like, you know, one of these things where a lot of their childhood stuff uh, kind of comes to bear in the family in the modern day. I don't want to say a ton more about it, but there's some really good stuff in there about just sort of the relationships between parents and their children the relationships between siblings, the secrets that families keep. But really, the really spectacular part about it, and Jane Harper is very strong in writing in this way, is the setting. I think the setting is just incredible. Toby and I, I I think, were we like slacking each other during the book, Toby, talking about just like how bananas that part of the world is and how like living there would just be like, it's like incredible that anybody like lives there. You know, it's like the American West, but to the nth degree. Yeah. I mean, it's just it's crazy. I I'd listened to it. I didn't read it. I listened to it on Audible. It's a great listen. Yeah, it really the, is. The guy who reads is really good. He is really good. I think I believe he also read The Dry. And also there was a second novel in between, right? This is the third? This is her third Yeah, I novel? heard that wasn't quite as good as the other two. It wasn't. I actually listened um, to it and I didn't love it as much. as I loved The Dry and I loved this one. I loved it very, very much. And once again, that book is called The Lost Man by Jane Harper. And the second book was called Force of Nature. But this one, The Lost Man... Really great. And of course, I really recommend The Dry as well. You know, the other uh, just sort of a random recommendation is uh, an Australian mystery writer named Gary Disher. Ooh. His hero is this this guy, uh, Hal Chalice, who's a policeman. And they're really good, too. I mean, he's, he's, he's a very good writer. Uh, but you have to read them in order. It's one of those series where they refer back to, like, previous yeah. cases. Yep. So if you pick up the third one, you kind of ruin the first two. Gary so, Disher? In order, but they're good. All right. I'm going to look for Gary that. Gary Disher. Yeah. I'm actually looking for a new series. I like things that come in series because, as you know, my Audible yeah. tally for listening last month was, <laughs> does anybody want to guess how many hours I listened to Audible last month? Anyone want to guess? Anyone? 42. 78. 146 hours listening to Audible last Wow. Oh, my God. (laughs) Wow. So I I guessed high, and I was only halfway there. I was not even close. Yeah. I listened to a lot of audiobooks. Uh, So anyway. Wow. Yeah, that's how I ignore my family so successfully. That's how it works. (laughs) I think this would be really good for my mental health. (laughs) (laughs) If I just tuned everybody out. 
<laughs> I could like, what was it your boys said? They just could hit the 15 minute thing. 15, or 15 second, second thing. Yes. Yeah. I could do that if I was listening to audiobooks. My, yeah, fa- my, is- my, my favorite part of that segment of them reading the shitty reviews of our podcast was just how plain they made it that neither one of them have ever listened to a fucking minute of this podcast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> We should get all our kids great. together and they can talk about how we don't listen to our podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Henry listens to, Henry sometimes edits Married with Podcasts. So he's listened to that and he thinks that's the best thing we make. And I'm like, it's literally the only thing you've ever listened to that we make. Yeah. And he also edits the book club, which he like, he's always, he's always saying positive things to me about that. And Toby, he thinks that you've gotten really good as a podcast host. And Laura, <laughs> he you. fucking loves your show. Because oh, he, he thinks it's hilarious that you are like actually he's like Laura's getting something done on her show, <laughs> unlike our show apparently where we are just cackling and wasting everybody's cackling and cackling. <laughs> Will you stay tuned? Because I'm going to get some things done this weekend. I'm going to take my little recorder out to a political event. And Can't see wait. What happens. Can't wait. Who are you going to? Who are you going to go see? Mayor Pete. Nice. Nice. It is the season, guys. Tis it is. The they are everywhere. They so really it's are. like you have to just go. You have to take advantage of living in New Hampshire. All right. Well, moving on. Here we are. It's over. Yep. We're a week late, but we can't not talk about it. Last Sunday night, tens of millions of people gathered around their TVs to watch the end of the decade long blockbuster HBO series, Game of Thrones. Now, just a spoiler alert, although I do believe the statute of limitations is up on this series, even just a week out, we are going to be talking about the major plot points of the stuff that went down in the finale of Game of Thrones. So if you don't want to hear that stuff, go ahead and look at the time code in the show notes and you can just go ahead and skip there and you'll miss all the things that we are going to talk about. Now, Toby sent us no notes about his feelings of Game of Thrones, which is fine. Toby, you did watch it, right? You watched it. I finished it like two minutes before I got on. Well, I just want to run through some of the things that happened in this finale episode. I think I'm on record saying on on our after show anyway that I do believe this final season was very rushed. It was very telescoped compared to previous seasons. I don't know why it was six episodes. I think that was a bad choice, and I'm sure it had to do with money or something, but like... Six was too few for this many things to happen, so let's just move on from that uh, because that is just how I feel, and how I feel is the way you guys feel whether or not you want to or not. So, But I do want to talk about the beginning of the episode because it did start with sort of this like Holocaust, 9-11, like post-Hiroshima imagery, and you know, basically Peter Dinklage acting his little heart out, making his Emmy reel in the whole like first 20 minutes of this show. Laura, mm-hmm. what did you think of that setup, that whole Danny speech where it became clear that like this was not going to go differently than the path we'd been led down in previous episodes this season? Yeah, I think, you know, that was when she comes out and, you know, you see the dragon wings behind her. I mean, that was a really visually that was Cheesy, very but fun. Yep. Yeah, I was like, okay, this is cool. She's turning into the dragon because she's lost her mind. But I think, you know, if there was any hope, because you're kind of thinking, okay, when you're you're seeing, you know, Grey Worm executing people on the street and, and like, you know, the, the way that things are going, you're thinking, well, maybe she's going to come around. But when you see how she's transformed and you see her come out looking out and you see the whole body language change you're like yeah it's all over she's toast and then I'm like okay who's gonna kill her let's just move this shit along it's time to get her out of here (laughs) so 
But Tyrion, that was where I think his character has, you know, over the years, there's been times where, you know, like, okay, this guy's just trying to stay alive, fucking off, whatever, hanging out with prostitutes. But I really felt like this episode, like you said, he really, it was, I think, the best acting that we've seen. Yeah, he was really extraordinary, even though I think some of what he was doing was... Let's let's be honest. We watched that huge hall fill with rocks last week. And then this week, like, <laughs> yeah. they're just hanging out on top of the pile. He's able to find his brother and sister just right there by the top, like by moving one little he, clearly, yeah. was clearly, which, by the way, were deck like patio paving stones, moving one of those aside. Yeah. And they were yeah. right. There was a little much. And then the other thing that happened and um, Toby, I know that as a novelist, you probably have thoughts about, you know, devices like this is Jon Snow stabs the woman he loves that he's now been following for a really long time and that all of his compadres have been following for years after just one very sincere conversation with the imp, Peter Dinklage. Did you see that coming? Did I see it coming? Yes. Well, it was either going to happen or it wasn't. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like he was either going to take the advice or he wasn't going to take the advice. Uh, I, I, I guess it was, you know, again, without having hardly any context. My kind of takeaway was that Daenerys like had become a zealot. That was like her, you know, flaw or whatever. And Dinklage was, uh, he, he just seemed like though he, he played it pretty sincere. Like he basically manipulates everybody into getting what he wants. Mm. Right. I mean, he goes from about to be executed to at the end, he's, you know, the right hand man of the new King again. Again, yeah. this I is guess. his third time, and, by uh, the way, being a hand. It's just like literally yeah. his third time. So he's pretty, he's pretty good at it now. <laughs> um, I mean, the most surprising thing was that that MAGA kid who who was hassling that Native American elder is the guy who becomes the king. <laughs> that was the only thing I could think of when I saw that guy. Oh no! Yes, uh, Bran, the most boring character in the history of the show. First of all, the fact that uh, the imp is in custody still and gets to decide yeah. like for these people yeah. what they're doing. But yeah, I didn't see that coming. I didn't either. And of all the things that happen, I mean, I think you can complain about the way some of the things happen in these final episodes. But, you know, Kevin and I were talking about this and I do have some of Kevin's thoughts here, too, which I'll read in a second. But like a lot of the stuff that happens on these shows, like it's fine because, you know, we don't owe these characters anything. They are characters and it is sort of an epic and these characters do have predictable arcs. But we literally saw this guy getting dragged around on a tree branch for like three <laughs> fucking years. And what happened to the woman who dragged him? She died. <laughs> did she? Okay, I couldn't remember. Yeah. Laura, did you see that coming? I didn't. And I was just like, huh, what the fuck? I mean, in the end, I was like, okay, I can see why they did this. But I, the part that I thought was like kind of funny is like we've been watching, you know, Bran out in the woods doing his thing, becoming the Three-Eyed Raven. And for like the longest time, they'd, they'd be like, Bran, he'd be like, I'm not Bran. I'm the Three-Eyed Raven. Right. And suddenly this week, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm Bran. I'm like, oh, now you're Bran again? Why do you <laughs> like, think I came this far? <laughs> why aren't your eyes rolling back in your head anymore? Was that a bunch of shit? You're not the Three-Eyed? I, I don't know. So, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think it made sense, but it was just not what I expected happening. In hindsight, though, I just have to say, now it does make sense why the Night King was coming for him because he knew he was going to be the next king. Yeah, it makes more sense, doesn't it? Well, Kevin has some thoughts. Do, would you mind indulging Kevin in absentia so I can just sort of get through his thoughts? Because he really wanted to weigh in, but he can't this week. 
He sounds a little bit like Bran, Three-Eyed Raven, when he tries to talk. How do I feel about the ending of Game of Thrones? It's not how I would have done it, but that's the point. Game of Thrones is not another TV drama where the characters can go off in any direction. It's an epic, like a mystery. Its direction is predestined. Wrapping up storylines isn't about getting to the end, but showing where it was heading in the first place. If you don't think the ending has been in place since the beginning, just think of Hodor and the seven-season payoff of learning his name. I would have liked to see Jon Snow take the throne. Game of Thrones is his tale, but it's George R.R. Martin's story. Don't let HBO fool you. The books are going in the same direction. And we should know that he will slay our darlings because he's done it time and time again. I think Bran is a terribly boring character. He'd be my last pick, but it's not my pick. It was baked into the story from day one. There would have been no drama if Jon killed Cersei to end the war. Having him kill Danny was peak tragedy. I don't know why I'm surprised so many fans are angry and say they watched all these episodes for nothing. Did they not enjoy Littlefinger, the Battle of Blackwater, or the Battle of the Bastards? Do they watch the Red Wedding and say, hey, let's sign a petition to bring Rob and Cat back? You enjoyed the ride, but you were surprised by the destination. If you could guess what the ending was, then it wasn't a great show. It wasn't all bad. Drogon destroying the Iron Throne was really symbolic. Him flying away to places unknown, a persistent threat to mankind, is a nice touch. I loved the small council that was filled with all of our favorite sidekicks. And John going north of the Wall forever, where he can be free of his past, is a suitable ending for a hero. Wow, Kevin, that's a lot of fucking thoughts for me to read out loud. Mm. I actually dis- disagree with a couple of things that Kevin says here, and I'm going to let Toby weigh in because I have a note here that says... I bet the dragon thing with him burning the throne, I bet Toby will think that really is really stupid. I thought it was pretty stupid. But, you know, I just have a hard time with the whole, like, I'll be like, the reason why I haven't watched Game of Thrones is the same reason why I can't watch superhero movies is I just, I can't get past the fact that it's actors dressing up and acting like this stuff is like serious and real or whatever. I just, I can't make that leap. There's like a, all this stuff that seemed like it must have been green screen oh, type yeah. stuff with people like looking in awe or like totally freaked out. I'm just like, good God, what the hell? But so, yeah, the whole thing with the dragon melting the throne, I don't know. The, the whole thing was so like kind of portentous. Like maybe if I'd been there for the, like the whole thing or even more than two random episodes in my past, mm. I might have had a little more emotional investment in it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, after it's just like, ugh, what are you guys even f- fucking talking about? Toby doesn't like the costumes. He doesn't like the fantasy oh, part of it. Costumes. He's a realist. Okay. Listen, he's I'll a leave my realist. Wonder Woman belt at home when I see him next week. <laughs> So, Laura, quick follow-up question. We feel good about where Sansa ended up, do we not? Yes. I think that Sansa ended up in the right place. I mean, I liked also that, uh, so, you know, that the North is free. They are their own place. She ends up there. And I am also waiting for the sequel. Like, I feel like they're setting up for a sequel with Arya. Yeah, West of Westeros. But also, who are all those people that showed up that are sitting up there? I'm like, who are these people? Like, where did they come? Some of them, I'm like, I haven't seen these people for like five seasons. And now they're back for the finale? uh, A lot of them were related to Catelyn Stark. One of them was her brother. One of them was her nephew, who used to be uh, breastfeeding on his mom when he was like 12 years old. Is she the one who got pushed out the hole? Yes, that's her son. By Littlefinger? Yes, yes. So he was there too. So like a lot of Catelyn Stark relatives. And then, of course, the Iron Islands woman who yeah. was Theon's sister. Mm-hmm. I, I was not a fan of all the inside jokey stuff like about democracy and stuff. All that stuff was corny as hell. All right, well, let's do what we do. Let's go ahead and just, uh, Toby, you can go ahead and, and be as superficial about this as 
you want. Give our thumbs up or thumbs down review for this final season of Game of Thrones and the finale in particular. Laura Brickert, what do you think? Oh, um, I'm going to say thumbs up. I mean, I know that, you know, everybody's getting all nitpicky and complaint. I like it. I, I, I mean, let's look at what we watch on TV. This is definitely the best show that I watch on TV. Yeah, there's things I didn't love. But by the way, that guy came back, the big redhead guy at the Night Watch. Torment. I thought he turned into a zombie. I yep. thought he was dead. No, I guess he's alive. So, you know, thumbs up. I mean, it, it's definitely sad to see it ending. And I'm hoping to find another show to fill its place. But, um, you know, it was a fun ride. Well, as Kevin said on Sunday night, when we had a bunch of people over for the however many episodes there have been, we have hosted uh, an evening of friends and snacks and hanging out, you know, for every episode of this series. It, Kevin was basically like, you have to just give it a thumbs up for that, if nothing else, even if you hate it, because what other show gets people together the way this one does? Toby Ball, what about you? Thumbs up or thumbs down? I think we know where this is going to go for the finale and this final series, the little of it we made you watch of Game of Thrones. It's it's weird. I, I imagine this would be this, this way for like almost any show where, you know, there's all this like emotional payoff that's supposed to be happening. So if you don't even know who the people are, much less have any investment in them, you're just like, like the whole death scene with Daenerys. Mm. I was like, okay, we can wrap this up now. We got it. And uh, so, you know, it's not it's not fair. I'll put it this way. If you only watch one episode of Game of Thrones and it's this one, you're probably going to be mystified and somewhat disappointed. <laughs> well, I'm going to give this final episode, this is tough. I have to give it a thumbs up. I'm going to concur with Kevin that even though I would have done it differently, that's kind of the point. A lot of it was preordained. Do I think it was perfectly executed? No. Do I think this season was too short? Yes. Do I think if they had delivered this season differently in a more like protracted way that made more sense with more signposting and so forth, and then we ended up in a lot of these same places, would I say this was a great finale? I probably would. <laughs> Moving on. A new podcast from NPR called White Lies looks at the 1965 murder of Unitarian minister James Reeb, an activist from Boston who was fatally beaten on a sidewalk in Selma, Alabama, during the height of the civil rights movement, just days after Bloody Sunday. That was the police attack on peaceful black protesters marching across the Edmund Pettus Bridge. In a somewhat earnest telling of the story, reporters Andrew Beck Grace and Chip Brantley make a big promise. They're going to solve this still unsolved case and answer some lingering questions along the way. This is a story about a murder that happened in 1965. The man was hit last night over his head because a bad situation has developed and created a lot of hate in the white community. And there's one man dead and one man dying, and that's enough to pay for a voting bill. It's about the lies that kept this murder from being solved and about the small southern city where it all happened. Well, the whole damn town knew. I didn't discuss it with nobody, honey. After it happened, I kept my mouth shut. I don't remember nothing. I don't want to remember nothing. Hell, when you get bad stuff, you leave it alone. Learn not to hear it. Now, just a little spoiler alert. We are going to be discussing plot points from the first couple of episodes of White Lies. So if you'd rather skip to our thumbs up or thumbs down review, just go ahead and look at the time code listed in the show notes. Now, I hinted there in the intro that this story is somewhat earnestly told. There are two reporters, Andrew Beck Grace and Chip Brantley. 
and sort of very straight production style with a theme song and sort of an end song. But one of my questions in listening to this podcast is why these two reporters? Why these two guys? I mean, with some stories, I think we need that because the two people sort of play different parts, you know, when you have sort of the dual host. And I found myself just wondering, you know, how that decision was made in this story. Toby, what did you think of the delivery of this podcast in that regard? Uh, it, it seems a little strange and awkward, to be honest. You, you know, it'd be one thing if if like one would pick up part of the story, you know, and go and interview somebody and then somebody else is telling a background about something. But in fact, they seem to switch off paragraphs at times, like somebody will read a paragraph and then the other guy will read the next paragraph. And it's just, it's a little bit distracting and I don't really get what the point is. And when the phone calls are made, they all stand in front of the restaurant in the approaching darkness. They don't know this place. They don't know this street. They've got a meeting to get back to. What's the best way back to where they've come from? Should they turn left or right? This is 1965. These men are strangers here. Northern men in a segregated southern city. White men standing in front of a black restaurant. Three men and a decision to make. You know, I think as you were saying, they're both they're both quite earnest. Yeah. That part of it's a little odd, I have to say. Yeah, that's like a very NPR thing. The podcast Believed had that same format, two female hosts oh, just sort yeah. of switching off. Also a podcast that we did not review on this show, but I think I am have gone on record saying that I hated, even though I know and love one of the hosts and I love his work and I don't blame him in any way for my hating it. The podcast Last Scene had that same sort of like switch off style. I think there's some thinking there that like people can't tolerate hearing one person talk for too long. But I think Madeline Barron in the dark and serial have sort of like disproved that whole thing. But one more other thing about the the reporters, um, Rachel Martin, the NPR host, interviewed these two guys and she asked them a question that I found myself kind of having. And she was talking about the fact that they are two white male reporters. And she asked, you know, of all the murders that happened during the civil rights movement, particularly the murders of black Americans in the South, why focus this podcast on this particular white man? Andrew Beck Grace had an interesting answer. He said, once we got into the story, we realized that Jimmy Lee Jackson's death was nothing to this country at a time that it happened. It was Jim Reeb's death that galvanized the nation. The idea that a white man was killed, that meant so much that Johnson invoked, that people around the country protested, and the reception of the importance of the death of a white man over a black man said a lot about race at the time, and as we would come to find out later, a lot about how race operates in this country today. Interesting answer. For me, I'll just say it doesn't quite overcome the question. It also doesn't quite overcome the awkwardness of the two hosts and why it is that they're reporting the story. I feel like we don't need that in every podcast, but in this one, I would have liked to have heard more about how they intersected with the story. Laura, what do you think? Am I remembering incorrectly? Weren't they both from Alabama? That's what they both said. Yes. Yeah. So at least one of them what, was, I think. That's kind of what I took from it was that they were like, NPR was like, hey, who do we have from Alabama who works from us? Oh, these two guys, they're friends. <laughs> or, you know, let's send them out to do this podcast. I mean, that was kind of like my train of thinking as I was listening to this. You know, I guess I wasn't as distracted by the two of them um, as you guys were. But this comment that you just read, I think that actually is a really interesting way to look at this story. And it's also kind of sad and makes me pissed off that all this is happening, but it's not until a white minister is killed that people actually want to do something about it. Right. So that 
that's some rage walking material right there. And I'll leave it at that. True. Uh, Lara Bricker, which place is more racist, Selma, Alabama or Winona, Mississippi? And by the way, will every podcast Ooh. tackling the subject of white supremacy and injustice in the South pale in comparison to in the dark? Like, did you find yourself making that comparison as you were listening? Oh, yeah. I was like, oh, the, this is this is like in the dark. And then um, especially when they're like, we're going to go find some records, but they don't exist. So we're going to a warehouse and we're digging through old boxes. I'm like, um, yeah, OK, you guys, just like Madeline Barron right now. There were a lot of parallels in terms of, you know, listening to especially the prosecutor in this case who was like, Oh, well, you know, when they questioned like the voir dire question about whether people had a bias, uh, racial bias, and he's like, oh, well, that I think that made them have a bias. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me right now? <laughs> um, really? So I think there was definitely a lot of parallels. And I hate to say it, you know, it just, um, man, it's just, I don't know, Alabama, Mississippi, I, I, I'm not going to get too political here. But I'm going to say Alabama recently is kind of leading the way. So I'm going to go with Selma, Alabama. Yeah. One of the things that struck me in this podcast was that the trial itself, you know, we hear that prosecutor, the one who's supposed to be on the right side, right, getting justice for this victim, basically telling people at the time and telling the press at the time, like, I don't have much of a case, which is like totally like, what the fuck? But then, Toby, why wasn't the testimony of the two most important witnesses in the case, the other two victims, the one who actually saw James Reeb being beaten, why wasn't their testimony enough? I mean, Let's be just talk about where we were. They were white in a, in a courtroom where white people have more agency than black people. Although, of course, these jurors did say that they saw themselves as being above white civil rights workers and blacks like they were very clear about that. But why do you think this whole idea like the case falling apart when these two other victims say, you know, those are the guys who did it. I mean, were you surprised that they just sort of let that lie there as a thing where the whole case fell apart, even though like two people identified them in, in person in the courtroom? It doesn't surprise me that that's what happened. Hmm. You know, the carpetbagger, it's part of Southern culture in looking at Northerners coming down and telling them how to live their lives. You know, the fact that they were white, you know, I don't think it's, it's necessarily means that much since what they were really doing was going down there and trying to change the way white Southerners were relating in their lives to black people. They were physically threatened, you know, throughout the South, white Northerners who came down. So that didn't surprise me at all. So I guess my follow-up question to that would be, you know, I think there's a very strong character here. We get introduced to her near the beginning of the podcast. There's a woman who lives in Selma who gives civil rights tours, and she's driving the two reporters around and sort of talking about the community. I love that lady. We going to Lanes. Y'all ever ate at Lanes? Yeah, I've been to this one. Okay, well, oh, this is a real one. <laughs> uh, this is a real one. This is the hood one. It's a mild winter day, and we're driving through Selma with a woman we've come to know in recent years. Her name is Joanne Bland. Where did you uh, grow up? George Washington Carver Homes. Where else? In the projects. But it's across still, from the church. Right across from the church. Okay. Grew up in the church. In that church. And Brown. Laura, what do you think of that voice in the podcast? I kind of walked away thinking, like, I want to hear more of, of her. Oh, yeah. Especially when they start off and they talk about 
you know, that she's she's taking them around and she's pointing out what things happen. But then you hear, I think she was 11 years old and she was on the bridge when this all happened and she was there. To have somebody that experienced that as a child, but now giving this historical perspective and, you know, good for her for, um, you know, keeping awareness and education out there. But I thought she was an interesting voice to have in there. And I certainly hope that we hear more from her as we go forward because she really had that sort of, institutional knowledge, I'll say, like that historical knowledge that you really only get living there. What I remember the most are the screams. People were just screaming, and I probably was too, screaming and screaming. People lay everywhere, bleeding, not moving. I thought they were dead. Took as burns your eyes. So you're blind, and then you can't breathe. You panic. Well, then contrast her with that woman they have who's like, Ugh. Like a big Nathan Bedford Forrest yes. fan. Daughters yes. of the American Revolution lady. It's crazy. I mean, that, that she's like sort of lost cause, bring back the old South, you know, sort of unrepentant racist. Speaking of unrepentant racists, Andrew and Chip go to look for one of the surviving jurors that exonerated the suspects in the murder of James Reeb. And the first guy they talk to sounds exactly like you would expect he would. We ain't gonna talk to you about that. No, you don't want to talk to thing of the past. It's all gone. It'd be better if it's forgot about. And I think I'm the only juror left. Oh, and I don't give a hoot what I say. I'll be misquoted and lied about. And I've had enough. I'm up to here. And then we hear from another juror uh, who they also talk to. And we find out that... What's going on here in this town anyway is that there's a a reframing of this story about James Reeb and it's basically sounds like a false flag origin story. They believe that James Reeb's uh, fellow victims did something to him in the ambulance on the way to the hospital so he would die so that they would have somebody to point to to galvanize the civil rights movement. What do you think about that? What do I think about that? Yeah. What do you think about that? <laughs> I hope this puts you on the Brichter scale, Toby, because it did me. And also, Toby, what do you think about the fact that the podcast and the reporters behind it feel like they need to dissect and address it in this? And they need to give it some space to talk about. I mean, just I'm curious to know your reactions on that, because I had thoughts and I was wondering if you did, too. Yeah, well, I think it's the lies that you tell yourself to justify things that you're uneasy about. Like, it's just it's so ludicrous. Laura, would you listen to a podcast that was just Lady Bird Johnson's audio diary? Yes. Yes, I would. (laughs) As the afternoon wore on, the tension began to mount for everybody in Lyndon's office, I'm sure. At six o'clock, Lyndon was in his pajamas, but far from resting. The speech was being brought over to him a page at a time. This was still going on at seven o'clock, and he had to be on the stand delivering it at nine. We got a new rug today, and also all this other stuff is going on, but I'm super calm about it. I'm like, Lyndon came home and put on his PJs before he went to do his, I'm like, what? He came home and put his PJs on before he did his speech? Like, I was just like so fascinated by that. I kind of want, I, I'm like, where can I listen to this? Yes. It felt like a unique sort of moment in time. Like she... <laughs> The thing that struck yeah. me about it was the way she delivered it, it sounded like she was reading. But mm-hmm. then I'm like, but if she wrote it down, why is she making this audio diary? <laughs> like, that- yeah, it was it was just uh, very interesting. Um, 
I guess I kind of wanted to know now, like who else, what other first ladies are making these audio <laughs> diaries? What else might we learn about? That sounds like a great podcast. Well, right we know there. that Richard Nixon had one of a kind. Toby, what mm-hmm. did what did you think of those Lady Burr Johnson pieces of audio? Did you find them interesting or Laura and I just hung up on the sort of like weird intimacy of the whole thing? I guess they were pretty interesting. Do you go home and put of, your uh, PJs on before you give a speech, Toby? <laughs> I always, I always have my PJs on, at least under my clothes. Um, yeah, I th- it, it, it was interesting. I, I guess getting a sense of, like, at the very highest levels of U.S. government, how they were perceiving this thing that you're you're sort of following, like on the ground throughout the podcast. So I thought that was good. I think the reason that I liked listening to those is that, you know, it's it's not just the, you know, there's a weird sort of delivery around it and the idea that exists is weird. But then also you hear her in her own voice talking about in one room having all these members of Congress laughing and partying while civil rights protests are gathered outside the White House. And what does she say? You know, oh, you know, what a house, what a house. Like she yeah. really does grasp like the import of the moment and where she is physically standing in history in a way that just seems so absent from the thinking of the occupants of the White House today, you know, wherever you are politically with this administration, it's very hard to imagine anybody occupying a space like Lady Bird Johnson did and thinking of it that way and being that self-aware about sort of like the import of the moment in history. I mean, this was such a fascinating time. And, you know, Lyndon Johnson had such an interesting role to play, you know, with the Voting Rights Act and, and the civil rights movement in a, in a surprising way. Like people didn't expect him to be that guy. And he was. Toby, you sent me a note about a piece of writing in the podcast, you know, the part where they say something along the lines of um, the South not confronting its conscience in the trial. You know, I you see that sometimes and I, I kind of feel like it's in generalizing in that way that it sort of lets people off the hook and then also kind of makes it seem like an entire region sort of made this collective decision when it was the people in Selma, the people on the jury, and it wasn't not facing their conscience. I mean, they were, they were racists. Right. You know? I mean, I think that was the... The reason why the the prosecutor was saying they had a weak case and the defense attorney was very confident in his case is that the men, the white men who are on this jury, are not going to convict these boys, you right. know, our white men buddies. So to me, it just, you know, by sort of generalizing it and then sort of framing it as they have a conscience and they're, and they're sort of ignoring it, it just seemed to kind of soft pedal what was actually happening there right, right. a little bit. And it's not, you know, it's not unique to this podcast. It's like the kind of thing you see again and again and again. And it's like, no, you know, this was a specific thing that happened in a specific place at a specific time. People knew what the outcome was going to be. Right. I don't know. It's it's not really, I, I don't really think of it as lazy writing, but I, I kind of feel like you're making, trying to make a larger point in a way that kind of lets people off the hook. Hmm. Well, uh, this podcast is making some big promises, so it's interesting to imagine whether or not they're going to be able to deliver on those. Uh, But in the meantime, let's do what we do. Let's let our audience know, should they check out the new podcast, White Lies? This is a podcast from National Public Radio, uh, kind of the place that audio narrative storytelling began in this vein. Laura Bricker, I'm going to start with you. Thumbs up or thumbs down. Do you recommend to our listeners that they check it out? And are you going to keep listening to White Lies? 
I'm going to say thumbs up. You know, I feel like it is well done. I feel like the story is really interesting. And the time is is the time to tell a story like this and sort of reexamine a time like this in history. But you know, it's a really hard listen. Um, when I was when I started listening to this, I was like, you know, with all the shit that's going on in the world, I'm not sure I can take anymore right now. This is again like some pretty. It, it's 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 heavy. It's it's intense. And so I think you have to be in the right frame of mind to be ready to listen to something like this. But I do think it is well done, and I think they have a lot of really interesting voices. I love the jurors, uh, especially the one they found that they talked to. I would say thumbs up with that caveat. What about you, Toby Ball? Thumbs up or thumbs down for White Lies from NPR? So the story is super interesting, and it's at a really important time in our country. Obviously, there were some little things about the podcast that seemed a little bit off to me for sort of weird reasons. Like I, I listened to quite a bit of it in the car, and there'd be these moments where it just like, it seemed like it was silent for an uncomfortably long period. And then- they would start up again. And I couldn't tell if maybe there was like some music that was hard to hear in the car or something that kind of kept throwing me. And then like we talked about the the two people talking and I thought it started really slow. Hmm. They spent a lot of time sort of describing Selma's place in history and stuff like that, which I already knew. And I think probably a lot of people know. And so I, I felt like it took about 20 minutes before it got interesting. But after that, it's super interesting. And this is one that I'll definitely like listen to the next episodes. So thumbs up. You mean all that description of the wood paneling, Toby? Oh, God. (laughs) There was a lot of wood paneling in this episode. That's true. Yeah. I'm going to give it a thumbs up, but barely. I think it's fine. And I think it should be better than fine. So I think a lot about what Toby said a couple weeks ago, where there are a lot of things that are not as good as this that I've given thumbs up to just because I sometimes um, give points for creativity or points for trying something new or something that's surprising. The problem with White Lies for me is that it's not new and there's nothing surprising and it's not done in any way that's particularly special. It's a good story. I understand why they're telling it. People who do it seem very competent. The reporting is fine. There's nothing particularly creative about the production or the mixing. And it feels to me like it was, this is the way I feel about a lot of NPR products. It feels like a lot of it was created by committee because there are shadows of stuff in here that feel to me like, hey, that podcast in the dark did this, so we should do it too. And one of them is that scene that uh, Toby was just talking about, that sort of protracted description of Selma and that sort of protracted description of that scene on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And there's a lot of like shadow leads where they will say what happened and then you hear what happened and they'll come back and say it again. And that stuff works for In the Dark because they're describing a place, Winona, Mississippi, that we don't know as well as we know Selma, Alabama. And I'm not saying that this is how the editorial process went, but it is impossible to not compare the two. And when they try and they do so many of the same things, like searching for the old archive records, like visiting jurors, it's hard to not compare the truly excellent in the dark with just this you know, somewhat competent piece of reporting that's here. I also do have an issue, by the way, with the highlighting of this case and the fact that it's two white guys telling the story. I know they're good reporters. It's fine. But those aren't questions that are addressed in the podcast. And I think that they should have been. So I'm going to give it a thumbs up because it's fine, but I'm not going to give it an enthusiastic thumbs up.
Now it's time for my favorite part of the podcast, a little something I like to call the crime of the week. Crime of the week. A new study from Georgetown University had some surprising findings about the New York City Police Department and facial recognition technology. When a witness said the guy who stole beer from him looked like actor Woody Harrelson, they ran a photo of Woody Harrelson through their facial recognition system. It came back with a bunch of guys who looked like Woody Harrelson, and one of those guys was arrested for the theft. The study says this happens a lot. They recently used a picture of a New York Knicks player to track down an assault suspect. Police say facial recognition simply helps them narrow down suspects and no one is arrested on facial recognition alone. They've cracked 2,900 cases over the past five years using this system. Interestingly, for all the suspects the system produced, none of them came back with Woody Harrelson himself. This is sure to embolden other celebrities to commit crimes, knowing their photographs will come back as other people. Now, panel, this really got me thinking, and I wanted to ask you, which celebrity's image would likely lead to you being on the police shortlist for having committed a crime? What do you think, Laura Bricker? Well, in preparation for this, I did two online quizzes where I uploaded my photo to a which celebrity do you look like quiz. Really? I'm probably going to... Yes. The first one told me I looked like Uma Thurman, <laughs> which oh, sorry, I didn't, I didn't that really laugh, say. Is that an insult? I'm sorry. It, it was that cackling. No. And then the second one said Eva Longoria. So I don't know. Nice. <laughs> I guess Uma and Eva are cleared to commit some crimes now. So, you know, I'll take the hit for them. I'm going to go with Eva Longoria for myself as well. What about you, Toby Ball? Which celebrity image would likely lead to you being on the police shortlist for having committed a crime? I felt like we did this like two or three years ago. Did we? It'd be David Beckham or uh, Brad Pitt or uh, I can't even remember who the other guy was. Guys, Kevin's not here. Which celebrity uh, picture would likely lead to police to him, to his way? Like, who does he look like? Ooh, Kevin. I think he looks like the little imp on Game of Thrones. I think they have a very what? similar face. I do. They have the same face. Peter Dicklitz. So Tyrion say- Lannister wants to commit some crimes. Kevin will take the fall and we'll know where to find him because he's at home right now. I'm still going with Ricky Gervais. I'm going to go with like Billy Joel. Oh, that's not bad. That's they not have bad. The same hair. Yeah. I think it's the hair. Well, we should probably end it on that note. Before we do, Laura Bricker, do we have a cat of the week this week? Um, we don't. We have a somewhat selfish dog of the week here. Um, Buddy the dog, my dog Buddy, going in for surgery in the morning. I'm very nervous about it. He's having his ACL repaired in one of his hind legs. So, Buddy is getting ready for eight weeks of rehab. He has to be carried around with a sling. So well wishes for Buddy because he puts up with a lot of nonsense from the three cats in this house. So I feel bad that he's going to be convalescing with the three cats. I feel bad about that too, but he'll be good. He's a a good dog, Buddy is. He is a very good dog, yes. All right, Laura Bricker, people want to send their well wishes to Buddy the dog during his recovery. How can they find you on Twitter? At Laura Bricker. And Toy Ball, if people want to send you examples of outstanding costume and fantasy drama that could change your mind about watching actors in different eras staring at green screens. How can they find you on Twitter? Send all that shit to at TobyBallNH. And if you want to follow my wonderful husband, Kevin P. Flynn, you can find him at Kevin P. Flynn. And if you want to follow me on Instagram or Twitter, you can find me at RebLavoy. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CrimeWritersOn. And I encourage you to join the amazing community 
on our official Crime Writers On Facebook discussion group. We also have a regular old Facebook page, by the way. Support the show on Patreon.com slash Partners in Crime Media, and you will get the Crime Writers On After Show, Married with Podcast, Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club Podcast, and Laura Bricker's Leave It to Bricker Podcast. Our theme song was performed by the New York Scott Jazz Ensemble and used with permission. This show was recorded in the yoga loft above the bodega in Bay St. Louis, Mississippi studio, otherwise known as Studio C, the closet in our basement where we keep our imp, before we let him decide that the most boring person in the universe will rule us all. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Later. Nicely done, Toby. Oh, Dee says, let's let's talk about Kevin. He can't say a thing. Good idea. (laughs) Toby, um, thumbs up or thumbs down on Kevin Flynn? What do you think? Thumbs up or thumbs, like just in general as a person? Yeah, in general as a person. He's not here. I give him a big thumbs up. You do? I'm surprised to hear that. Why? (laughs) You know, he's he's compelling. (laughs) He's compelling. He's interesting. He always has uh, has a new twist. Mm. I don't know. I wasn't actually really expecting that question, so I don't have any prepared remarks. Partners in crime media. media.